The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are a righteous and holy, holy, holy God. We praise it and we see it, we sing of it just now. And we also marvel at given your righteousness and, and given our unrighteousness, we marvel that you are a gracious God and have made us your people. We bless your name and say thank you. And we ask you now to do more than just make us your people and then leave us, but to make us your people and draw near to us to work in us, to grow us, to teach and explain. Would you speak, Lord, now in this time, in addition to the, the, the songs that we have sung, how you have spoken through them, and the the prayers that we have heard, how you have spoken through them, in addition to all that, would you now, from your word, would you speak to conform us to your image, to teach us something of who you are, who we are to be, and Lord, please draw near to, to us here in this place and make this more than just intellectual growth. Make it truth that comes to us and changes us, please. We will look at the Bible. We will look at words and, and statements and arguments. Help us to understand them. But Spirit of God, do more than just give understanding. Press understanding into us to produce conformity. Conformity to the image of God in which we were made and, and from which we have deviated in sin. Conform us to Him. Make us a people pleasing to You. That would be our joy. Please give us that gift also. Growth. Change. Speak through Your Word now, Lord. Move among the people here and grow us, please. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning again to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We looked at this important chapter last week, the first half of it, where the Lord spoke to David through the prophet Nathan and gave to him a great promise. Though he doesn't use the word covenant, it is, it is the place where the Davidic covenant is found. He makes him a great promise. David, as king over all of Israel, was about to construct a, a palace, a temple for the king, the Lord. He was settled in, in Jerusalem himself. He lived in a palace himself and saw the ark of the Lord that he had brought in and put in a tent, saw it as only in a tent and thought he should build it a temple. And so he wanted to build a house of the Lord, and Nathan initially said, okay, good idea, but then the Lord spoke to him that night and said, no, 
actually tell David that I'm going to build him a house, a lineage, a line of kings. Essentially what the Lord is trying to communicate to David is, I don't need you to provide for me. I am the one who provides for you. I don't need you to shelter me. I'm the one who shelters you. He's trying to show him something marvelous, something good about his nature. And I will do that not just for you, but for a line after you forever. The Lord promised David, this is the heart of the Davidic covenant, He promised David to take one from his line, you would bring king after king after king after king, and he would bring one from his line always to sit on the throne over his people. And he would take that one and draw near to that one. And, and in language that was um, used in many other places throughout the, the, the area, I'm going to own him. I'll have a unique relationship with him. I will be like a father to him and he will be like a son to me. Promise that to David forever and ever and ever. A, a repeated refrain, forever. Your throne will last forever. Your kingdom will last forever. A great promise to David that's not ultimately about David. It was for the good of the people to plant them in a place of rest as we saw that. So we developed last week. That was the first half of the chapter, God's statement to David. And then the second half is David's response to that, which is what we're going to look at this week. He hears all this for the first time and how he responds to it is informative for us because he's looking at the same God that we're looking at. When he, when he receives from God this 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 promise, he's looking at the same God we are. And so how he responds back to him teaches us about how we should respond when we look at this promise-making and promise-keeping God. So that's what we're going to consider this morning in the second half of chapter 7. I'm going to read the whole chapter, but then only pass back through the second half to kind of pull out a couple of details and make sure we have the lay of the land there and then make a couple of observations. So I'm beginning 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled 
and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Second Samuel 7, the word of the Lord. The first half of this is the... The word that the Lord spoke to David and after Nathan came, verse 17 says, he's, he passed it all on to David. And then verses 18 through 29 are David's response. So we're listening in here on a man's private prayer. This is prayer. We don't know how it was recorded, but it, this is him by himself praying. It says in, in the beginning verse that he went in and sat down before the Lord referring to the tent that he he'd set up a tent it said in chapter 6 and he brought the ark in this is not the tabernacle that's somewhere else this is another tent that david set up to kind of house this ark and david went in before the ark of the lord and sat down there it 
it is hard for us to, to realize how significant that is. All worship before the ark was standing. The, the ark is the earthly throne of the Lord. And if you, if you think of or you ever see pictures of, of throne rooms, if you saw uh, the old John Adams series on TV, do you see the throne room of the, the King of England where John Adams comes in? The room is empty. There's one chair. And the king is on it. Everybody else stands. You stand in the presence of the king. But David goes in and sits down. There is remarkable, casual intimacy, fellowship there. He goes to sit before God. Last chapter, this box, when it was touched, power surged out of it and struck down Uzzah. You might think that'd be a little frightening to drop next. He goes and sits down casually, but not disrespectfully, because he addresses him repeatedly, O Lord God, again and again and again and again, O Lord God. And the, the typeset, you might notice there's some different typeset in your Bible. It's trying to indicate that that's a combination of title and name. Lord Yahweh, or Master Yahweh. It's his title and his name. It's very respectful. Mr. President Obama. He's casual, sitting down in his presence, but he's not saying, hey Barack, what's up? Mr. President Obama. Oh Lord Yahweh, Lord Yahweh, Lord, Lord God, Lord God, Lord God. Up close and personal with a God whom he deeply respects. This is how to pray. Up close and personal with Master Yahweh. How to pray. And then what he prays following can be divided into two halves. He has two sections to his prayer. Verses 18 through 24 are full of statements, not a request there. Statement after statement after statement, reflection and comment. He's talking to God and recounting what the Lord has done for David, what He just promised David. And that makes David think about the Lord and think about himself. And he looks at what he's done for himself in relation to his people. And so he thinks about his people. The first section is just reflecting on what God has done and what He said He's going to do. And it makes him think about God and about himself. This is instruction for mankind. It says there, end of verse 19. We mentioned this last week, but that's not a question. Some of your translations put that as a question. It's not a question, it's a comment. This is instruction. Using the word often translated as law, or guidance, or rule, or structure, or boundary. This is instruction teaching all of mankind that God has a king, a people, They're going to last forever and ever and ever. And mankind must know that and respond to it appropriately. David now hears this and knows it and is responding to it in praise. And then in the last section, he turns to make some requests. He starts to ask. 25 to the end is requesting one thing in particular. He ends with this great statement. Verse 24 ends with this great statement about you've made a people to be your people and you will be their God. And then 25, 
So now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you've spoken. In other words, do it. That's the request. Do it. Confirm it. This is what you've promised. You've made a revelation to your servant, and so because you've said it, I boldly ask you, do this. Confirm it. Bless the house of your servant David like you said you would. That's the only way that, that I'll be blessed if you do it forever. Last word. Bless the house of your servant so that he'll be blessed forever. That's the request. That's the section, that David's response, and I'm going to make two observations that parallel the two sections of the prayer. So starting in the first half, here's my first observation. A statement in the sense of prayer. O Lord God, You are great. That's my first point here. He hears what Nathan says, and it is as if he responds, Wow! Unbelievable! Oh, Lord God, you are great. The phrase itself is in verse 22. He says, therefore, you are great, O Lord God, which is a statement. It's not a casual statement like equivalent to awesome or wonderful, cool. It's a statement about stature and rank. Great. You are magnificent, amazing, Supreme, all alone in wonderful splendor. Men and women, this must sit on us. This must sit and soak in and run through every fiber of your body because as I'm going to say at the end of this point, this is what changes people. This is what makes you somebody different. When this sits on you. And the greatness of God soaks in, runs through, and fills up all that you are and all that you think about and all that you see. Oh, Lord God, You are great. As I sit right up close personal with You. This is the God who is the same holy, holy, holy Not like us, not like us, not like us. The the verse continues, there is no God besides you. David says that you are great. There's none like you. But look here what he is great about. He is not great for for his awesome separation. He is great for something in particular here in this passage. It's right before the statement about his greatness and right after the statement. It's all that David's reflecting on. If you look right before verse 22... You freely, 21, you freely of your own desire and promise did all this greatness and informed me of it. Therefore, you are great. That's the flow of thought coming into the statement and then coming out of it. Same thing. You are great and unique according to or like is shown by all that you've told us. What David's looking at when he sees the greatness of God is he's seeing all that God has done, the greatness that God has done for him the past grace of God, 
that he now sees, been informed of, and then the future grace of God that he's been promised and told. And he believes that because this has happened, he believes God's trustworthy, and he looks at that promise of God for the greatness on his life and says, Oh, great is the Lord. That must grip you if you are to be different. So look at and think about what David's looking at and and read your own life written into this. He recollects a people precious to the Lord taken by Him out of bondage. He's talking about Israel out of Egypt, of course. Taken out to make yourself a name. To pull them out of slavery and to bring them and put them in a place. And me. Me. As king over them. For their good. Amazing. Great and awesome things you did. And he's recollecting all the plagues and the parting of the sea and Mount Sinai thundering and the death of the kings and the sweeping of the land and the clearing out of the idols to give them a place and raise up David as king. Great is the Lord. And that is not somebody else's family history. Pastor Jed read and prayed a promise in the Old Testament that is very much about us. Most of us here are Gentiles. And by the great, great grace of God, we got something we don't deserve. We got grafted into something that isn't ours. Oh, the depth of the greatness and the mercy of God. That's your family story, though you're a Gentile. A couple of you are Jews. Most of us are Gentiles. That's our family story. By the grace of God, grafted into something that we have no right to, chosen by God to be placed into something that He he chose prior. Oh! He set you free from bondage, Christian. He put you under the reign of David, Christian. And carries you along until finally, finally, you know the language of verse 24 there. A people forever for God and God to be their God. That language runs all through the Bible until finally, finally it is fulfilled. Finally in Revelation 21. And now, finally, the dwelling of God will be with man and He will live among them and they will be His people and He will be their God. That's you. If you're a Christian. And there will be no more crying and no more tear and there will be no more affliction from evil men. Never again will you be disturbed, O people of God, planted in a place of peace, secured there because of David. Oh! Oh, it does you good. Can you imagine? I mean, you think of, perhaps you're struck by the words of the the Isaiah passage that was read earlier. A feast, rich food, marrow, wine. That's trying to paint a picture. The best thing you've ever had. That's what that picture is trying to say. In abundance, for free, forever, without threat. Come sit at my table. 
says the king. Oh, the greatness that he has done for you that you do not deserve, did not earn, had no right to, but are a recipient of and an owner of and an heir of all by amazing, amazing grace. Great is the Lord. Great is the Lord. There is none like Him who plans out and then reaches down and intervenes in power to make this happen. At the center of it is is a power that not just frees people from a physical bondage, but at the center of it is a power that sends His Son to the cross to free people from a spiritual bondage that could not be done otherwise. Sometimes people get out of slavery in nations. Sometimes by the power of the sword, bonds are broken. This one, not. But by the power of a great God, He reached in and saved you. Great is the Lord. And David marvels at that and sits in front of it and marvels. And I pray that you, like him, will look at that and be marvelously undone by it. Do you see? Marvelously undone. He looks at that and says, Oh, who am I? Who am I? Answer, nothing. Nothing. Who are you? Nothing. You don't really believe that, so I'll say it again. Nothing. I know you don't believe that, I don't believe that. Who am I? Who are you? And until the greatness of God rests on you and sinks on you and runs all through you, you will never believe I am nothing. But in fact, you are a flower quickly fading, a vapor passing away. And in every fiber of your being, there is rebellion planted and rising up. And a God of grace did not strike you, but reached down to save you. Oh, the greatness of this God astounding, marvelous grace and mercy upon mercy upon mercy on you. Who are you? Nothing. But you are now everything because of this great God. And that, men and women, that must fall on you if you are to be changed and to grow and to become like one Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Where does poor in spirit come from? Oh, you are great and I am not. I am not. You will never think you are not until you see He is. Oh. The greatness of God has come home to David here. And he stands and looks at all of the past grace which makes him shake his head. He can't believe that he sits in a palace in Jerusalem. And then he looks ahead and says, and that's a small thing because look what you have brought. Oh my goodness. 
Men and women, do you look at the past grace of God in your life and marvel at that and then realize that ain't nothing because of what He is doing and is bringing? Great is the Lord. The greatness of God has come home to David and He is undone by it in a sweet and precious way. Has the greatness of God come home to you, Christian? And if you are not a Christian, may the greatness of God come home to you because Jesus said, theirs is the kingdom of God, meaning those who are not poor in spirit, those who do not grasp the greatness of God and their nothingness before Him and cling to Him in all hope, theirs is not the kingdom of God. There is instruction to all mankind here. There is only one kingdom. Every other rival, every other usurper falls. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and greatly to be trusted and greatly to be hoped in and greatly to be rejoiced in. We need to think slowly over this. Part of the problem of preaching is that in some ways it's a little bit like torrential rain for ten minutes. In a half an hour the ground's dry again because it all and ran right off. It would be better to take all that water and dump it over the course of 24 hours and let it soak. This must soak into you. Or in a half an hour you'll be dry again. It'll be here and it'll run right off you. And the bears are playing this afternoon probably. And you'll be done. Or whoever you root for, if you can stomach the NFL. You know what I'm saying? Whatever it is will come up. It must soak into you. And that's what leads to the second piece of the prayer. Oh God, do it. Which is the second observation. Let me phrase it a little differently. Now Lord, here's the second point. Now Lord, please do what you have promised. That's the second point. Now, Lord, please do what you have promised. David's tone of prayer, the tone of thankful wonder never changes, but the content does. As I said, it changes to request. Now, O Lord, verse 25, confirm forever the word that you have spoken. This word about your servant and his house. Do it. He's still very humble in how he addresses God. He's talking to the third person about your servant, his house. Oh, Lord God, still addressing him that way. But he says, I'm so bold as to ask for such an impertinent thing that you bless my house forever and make the Messiah come from my line. There, I put it down on the table and I ask you for it. How? Because you said you would. You see there the request and the ground for it. Oh, Lord, the word you have spoken. This is the word that you have spoken. Do as you have spoken three times in the passage. 
That's why I can ask, because you made this revelation to your servant. You said so. Your words are true, verse 28. You've promised this good thing, so do it. So we see there's a connection between promising and praying. And one thing we learn in a general sense from that is that we should boldly ask God for the things that He has spoken, the things He has promised, just in general, I'm saying. We should pray His promises. Look at the promises of God. Look at His Word. Look at what He says He wants, what He says pleases Him, what He says He wants to make His people into. You see those things, and what you're finding there is a track that God desires, that God loves, that God is working down, that God's directing. And so you should pray along that line, seeing it as a prayer guidebook. This is what God wants to make me or make His people to be. I will pray for that. Knowing that He tells me so that I'll be drawn to it and be providentially used in my praying and in my acting to move that way. He uses means, like me, to bring about His promised ends. That's true for all of the promises. But to hold more closely to the passage, we should see in this a call to pray for what David is praying for. David prays this. Jesus prays like this. And teaches us to pray like this. We marvel with David at the greatness of God and then should pray with David, do what you said. Namely, Lord, establish the throne of your servant David and build him a house. Raise up David and in him reign over your people to do them good and make a name for yourself. Or in the words of Psalm 2, we could pray, Grab hold, Lord, of the Son of David, and against all opposition, plant Him firmly on Zion and give to Him all the nations as His heritage. Lift up the eyes of all the nations that they would look on this One whom you identified. This is My beloved Son the one that you lifted up and enthroned on the cross, the one that you vindicated when you brought him out of the grave, the one that you have exalted to sit and reign from heaven on high, this one lift up all of the eyes of all the nations and not just teach them, but draw them. Lord, we ask you to give to the Son the nations. Lift him up and cause his throne to reign. Bring all the nations to heal under Christ, thinking of Ephesians 1.10, for their healing. That is His instruction to mankind. It's His instruction to us. We should pray along the lines of the nations. But to draw that back a little bit, we should also pray for the throne of the King over the people who are already in the kingdom. That's us. Of course, others in other churches. When we pray, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's fully half of what Jesus taught us to pray. We are praying right in line with this. Your kingdom come, Father, in King Jesus. Your will be done, not just in heaven, but here. This people that you've gathered to make a name for yourself, hallowed be your name, not just in heaven, here. It's half of, fully half of what he taught us to pray. So we look at this great God and see us as who are we? And we see all of the promises in the past fulfilled and the ones yet fulfilled but held out there right in front of us. Brothers and sisters, take up those promises and say, bring them. Activate them. Hallowed be your name now. Your kingdom come here, now, on us, on me. Your will be done, not just out there in the nations. Yes, out there in the nations, but not just out there. Here in this room, amongst this people, in my life, over me. We cannot bring about the change that He means to make in us. We cannot cause the, this vision of the greatness of God to soak in and, and have this produce and produce this change. We cannot make that happen. So we must ask God, do it. Lift up the, the Son's throne over my life. Please. So I plead with your people. Without, I do not mean this in any kind of a condemning way. But the reality is, men and women, we do not understand how deeply entrenched, gripped by sin we are. We do not understand how warped our view of the world and of God, of ourselves and other people actually is. In love, in love, in love. We don't get it. We think, really, they have the problem. Maybe we think he has the problem. I have the problem. You have the problem. You do not regard God as great. You do not submit underneath of the reign of this good and gracious King, though He has laid out plenty of evidence for you to do so and plenty of promise and lure for you to follow after Him. You don't. And as we sit here together saying, Oh God, help us. We must pray. He alone has the power to reach in and take His Word and birth us again and again and again by the power of that Word. That's what's behind prayer. And you will not pray until you are... This is, this is what puts us in a, in a circle here that might seem counterintuitive at first, but I'll come back to it. 
You will not pray in desperation until you actually realize, oh, who am I? I have no power to make this happen. The circle is that that's a created response too, to realize who you really are. Everywhere we turn, we're dependent. Everywhere we turn, we need Him. Everywhere we turn, we are hopeless without His power intervening. Oh, God, help! Do you, are you, have you ever been at a place where you sense, I'm done with this. I'm tired of it. that might be induced by some trial from the outside. But in its sweetest moments, what it raises in you is an awareness. This all is passing away. I'm done spending my life to hold on to it. If you've been in that place... That is a precious thing, a precious gift from God. And it is fleeting, is it not? It runs away. And we're back chasing again. Men and women, God must rest on us and drive out this false affection that lives inside of each of us, this false affection for what's here and passing, and give us a desire for greatness and the glorious rest that He is bringing with His King. He must give that, and we must ask Him to give it to us, to open up His Word so that we see and are done with this and live as different people. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in my life. That's a prayer. And you will not pray it until you're done lusting after this kingdom and this life. In love, I'm not trying to condemn you. We don't get it. We don't. Oh! There's going to come a time somewhere down there you're going to look back. I I read this imagery in in a sermon written hundreds of years ago. Two people conversing in heaven looking looking back through the annals of time at a little dot over there. What's that? That's earth. That's where you used to live and used to spend all of your labors chasing after who can remember what. And the conversation goes on about the folly of that. Can you see that now? Can you see it now? The reign of this king wants to press into your life. If the reign of this king were to press into your life, he would reveal something of his greatness 
and of your great need and of the insignificance of all of this and would call you to chase after something more, something different, to pray, to pray, Lord, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will done in my life, in our church, in the nations. May Jesus be exalted. That's all that matters, that His name be magnified. And that would be the fullness of my heart's joy if that would happen. And we don't pray like that. Because we don't think like that. May God change us. Your prayer life shows you what you think about and what you want. Lord, do what you have promised. Lift up the throne of David. Carry this people home. And in the meantime, here and now, Lord, would you reach in, (laughs) cause the truth of your marvelous, glorious nature to soak into us and run through us, to produce kingdom change in us now, not just one day, but now. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in here in this earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, you do tell us to pray for that as one of the requests. Give us this day our daily bread and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one who wants to pull us away and convince us that this life is life and that we are something and you are small. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.